Hello and welcome to Byline Radio. This is What the Papers Don't Say with me, Adrian Goldberg. Today, Peter Jukes on Boris Johnson and the appeasement of Vladimir Putin. Peter has written a great piece over at bylinetimes.com about how Russia sought to infiltrate and undermine the UK over many years, not least by promoting Brexit, whilst the intelligence and security community and senior politicians who were well aware of what Peter described as Putin's information blitzkrieg did nothing. It's a big, sprawling story. What a vital national and international importance and one you won't hear anywhere else. We'll hear from Peter Dukes very, very soon. We'll also be hearing from Dr. Rupert Reid, who says he was cancelled by LBC today for rejecting a binary choice. He was a guest on Nick Ferrari's breakfast show. Ferrari posed the question, which is the greater danger, Vladimir Putin and cli- or climate change? When Rupert tried to introduce some nuance into his answer, he was kicked off air. Yeah, really. Fear not, though, he will get to have his say here on Byline Radio. As always, we want you to join in as well. If you've got a contribution to make to the debate or if our discussion prompts a question, just ask for a microphone and we will let you on. As long as you've got something to say that is meaningful and worthwhile and useful, you can stay on as well. This is Byline Radio. We are funded by ordinary people like you, not by oligarchs or wealthy proprietors. So to support us, please take out a subscription to the Byline Times. Now, you'll get a great monthly newspaper for your money. You'll also be supporting Byline TV, the Byline Times podcast, and now the radio revolution that is Byline Radio. You get details over at our fantastic news-breaking website, bylinetimes.com. That's where you'll find some of our fantastic stories, some great journalist writing for the Byline Times but you'll also find details there of how to subscribe. Please do it because it helps us keep telling the truth without fear or favour. More details over at bylinetimes.com. Let's start then with Peter Jukes. Peter is the executive editor of the Byline Times, one of the uh, founders or co-founders of the Byline Times. And Peter, the latest piece you've written for the Byline Times, White Flag, Boris Johnson, and the appeasement of Vladimir Putin. It is a big read. It is a hugely important story. Gosh, yes, Adrian. In a way, always with complicated, well, let's say conspiracies, complicated manoeuvres in the dark. The difficult thing is like feeling the edges of an elephant is telling the story. And as this piece I wrote, you know, for Byline Times um, made clear, you know, a lot of this has been in the public domain, these elements of this elephant. Um, But only really come into stark light when Putin's agenda, particularly for, you know, Ukraine and his sort of, in a way, strategic world plan has been shown so cruelly, so brutally in this almost apocalyptic images coming out of Ukraine. I always say on this, I, I must stress to all my readers and readers of other people like myself, Carol Cadwallader, Bill Browder, Luke Harding, Oliver Bullough, Catherine Belton, all of us who've been trying to outline this sort of monster, none of us wanted to be right. Um, Putin's very clever at hiding his intentions, bamboozling and being you know, seemingly liberal in the first 10 years. But the genocidal kind of restitution of a Russian 
red brown empire is cannot be ignored now so in that piece people could read in the tweet thread associated i basically um try to summarize a lot of the work we've been doing other people have been doing myself i first got involved in 2014 in ukraine went to kiev realized that there was something very dark emanating from the kremlin and then it was kind of reactivated around the Donald Trump elections. I saw Russian interference very clearly there, as others did in the early, while it was going on. But it wasn't until 2017, meeting up with Carol Cadwallader at the Byline Festival, uh, when those indictments began to land from Robert Mueller, the special counsel investigation, Russian interference in the US election, was realizing the extent of it here. In very brief outline, it's effectively in two halves. The piece, it basically pieces together the Russian infiltration of British politics, mainly led by Alexander Yakovenko, Russian ambassador appointed here in 2011, just as Vladimir Putin was returning a comeback as president. He'd been replaced by his pal Medvedev. He'd become prime minister. And then too much protest from people like Pussy Riot, but extensively across Russia. He came back in 2012. And at that point, you can see his Eurasian plan, his plan to weld together this new empire to threaten NATO in the EU in the East, was activated in London. Yakovenko very briefly put two senior diplomats who are later expelled, well, one under a bit of a shadow, denies he expelled, but the other one definitely expelled. One Nalobin to penetrate and target conservatives in the Conservative Friends of Russia. Another one, Alexander Udod, to penetrate UKIP. Nalobin befriended Johnson, took senior tourists to trips to Russia, uh, while Udod befriended particularly uh, Aaron Banks and Andy Wigmore, invited him to the embassy to discuss gold and diamond deals. Um, Alexander Yakovenko, the ambassador, finally left in 2019 just as Boris Johnson won, maybe it's coincidence, the leadership of the Conservative Party and Brexit was definitely happening, um, and returned to receive a very high order from Vladimir Putin personally, Alexander Nesky Medal, made head of the diplomatic school, and is reported to have said, you know, we have crushed Britain. It's down on its knees. It will not rise for a very long time. Sorry, I find it a bit emotional thinking about that. Anyway, so my point is people knew. We knew elements of this. The security services knew elements of this. I you, I was on in sem- 2017, uh, all, parli- all parliamentary private group on exactly this issue. But I was told then and by a conservative MP then, uh, and then the saga over the emails and Aaron Banks makes it even clearer, don't let it derail Brexit. There was the emails, Isabel Oakshot got, I was told, they didn't want to reveal them because it might derail Brexit in two thousand early late 2017, early 2018. We finally got them out, mid-2018. Huge legal threats, criminal threats, the whole caboodle on myself and Carol Cadwalder, who still suffers from Aaron Banks' libel action. I don't. Um, and so I think, to conclude... People have speculated. I, I mentioned the Lebedevs, their proximity to Johnson. Alexander Tomerko saying, yes, it was East European businessmen who persuaded Boris Johnson to back Brexit. But what the piece concludes, I think, in the public interest, and 
can't really be denied given that that don't let this derail Brexit element of Russian interference is that was the compromise. It's a brilliant jujitsu move or judo move from the judo player Vladimir Putin. That by the time Russian interference was clear in our elections, not only 2016 referendum, but particularly there, it was too embarrassing for the British state to do anything about it. The MI6, MI5 were deliberately, according to the Intelligence Services Committee report, not tasked to look at that. The NCA was stymied. And, you know, we were compromised. And I'd say we gave Vladimir Putin four years of a white flag. Well, six now, isn't it? So, OK, you do this stuff. You have your oligarchs floating around the London scene. We're actually not going to do anything about it. And he saw that. And that made him conclude, well, look, what are they going to do about Ukraine? But it obviously already invaded in 2014. But if I went further, they hadn't done anything about Syria. And I would say that was our appeasement of Vladimir Putin. Hmm. And we'll talk about uh, Boris Johnson's role in all this. And, of course, people should go over to bylinetimes.com and read the article for themselves in its full detail. But you reference the information blitzkrieg of Vladimir Putin. What Hmm. exactly do you mean by that? Well, that's not my phrase. Uh, uh, It's the phrase of the U.S. Army. Our great special investigations uh, editor, Nafiz Ahmed, found this army report commissioned under Trump by the Army College of what had happened about the future of NATO and Europe. And they basically said, well, Vladimir Putin has a vast information war across Europe, which is succeeding quite well with and funding right wing parties. And the first operation, the first big blitzkrieg was Brexit. So that is exactly what the uh, assessment of the U.S. Army is. And this is backed up by another bit of uh, revelation from, I think this is from a WikiLeaks document, yeah, which is that they had information that this was Vladimir Putin's plan back 2015-16, I think, or maybe a bit earlier. So we have Vladimir's plan, uh, information warfare, hybrid warfare, destroy, distract, demoralize before any physical attack. And then you have, you know, that being said by his officials, that being a plan laid out in the Kremlin and the Russians, uh, the Americans assessing three or four years later, 2020, this is what he'd done. And Brexit was kind of like the Battle of Britain was the first blitzkrieg. And was Boris Johnson, do you think, duped or was he simply only too happy to ride the beast, if you like, that Putin had helped to create? That's the million-dollar question, uh, Adrian. I mean, he had a lot of connections with Russia, and very much like his close pal, Evgeny Lebedev, proprietor of the Evening Standard and the Independent, during the referendum towed the line uh, when Putin had changed for the first time since World War II the maps of Europe and next to Ukraine, uh, that it was the EU's fault. You know, uh, Lebedev had also poured scorn on the idea that Litvinenko... Uh, or had been poisoned by Putin. There's all kinds of of apologetics for Vladimir Putin. And, of course, we know that several senior oligarchs close to Putin have poured millions into the Conservative Party. There is that 
financial interest. Boris Johnson likes bling. He likes holidays in mustiques, expensive wallpaper, billionaire Russian uh, oligarchs, you know, and it's not just him under Blair and, you know, to the same extent, people didn't question where Bramovich's money came from. Well, it's very clear it was stolen from the Russian people now. It was actually at the time. So he liked the money. I think ideologically, um, though he appears as a soft liberal, liberal, it's been increasingly clear he's an authoritarian. He makes racist statements about Muslim women. That ideologically he chimes with, as Trump did, there's elements of the Conservative Party that previously did not mind that kind of strong man stuff. That's all I can say at the moment. I mean, they, you know, there's constant rumours. You know, does Boris Johnson know some the money? Are there pictures? All the kind of Trump stuff that comes out. In a way, I think that is the secondary embarrassment, if that exists. So that probably on some conservative politicians, given that, you know, what they've done and where they've gone and the hotels they stayed at, maybe that exists. But the embarrassing thing is Brexit. That's the real. He wrote to power on making getting Brexit done in 2019 and previously on the Vote Leave campaign which was assisted and has been proved to be assisted by Russian state media, Russian trolls and things like that. And yet, Peter, and I'm going to bring in Rupert Reid in a moment, but these two stories are linked because, as you say, many of these elements which you've so skillfully brought together have Mm. been out there, have been known. What you've tried to do is make a complete picture of these disparate elements. What's striking and has been striking now over a number of years and the couple of years that I've been associated with the Byline Times is the lack of curiosity. In fact, I'd go further than that. It goes beyond a lack of curiosity by the established mainstream media. It's almost a desire to suppress questioning around these issues as if you are in some way treasonous or traitorous to even raise the possibility of Russian involvement, for example, in, in the Brexit referendum. Is that to be, Agent? So yeah, I, yeah, I, yeah, yeah, yeah. No, I, I'm, very, yeah. I, I'm very I'm looking forward to hearing what Rupert said, because I think that, you know, carbon reliance, the role of gas and, uh, you know, uh, petrol and everything and Putin's agenda is very much connected. But yes, well, there are two reasons for that. Two reasons. There's three reasons why other media organizations haven't covered. You know, John Sweeney wrote about Lebedev a year ago on Byline Times. Now it's a scoop. There was a tiny new element, but not much in the Sunday Times last weekend. I think, you know, there's with Lebedev, there's a problem of the emerge among press proprietors. We saw that with phone hacking. They didn't want to cover it until they had to, because there's a kind of, you know, honor amongst thieves when it comes to non-dom oligarchs who own our press. Secondly, the legal threat. When it comes to Abramovich, who's been sanctioned today, um, Catherine Belton wrote brilliantly about it in, in her book, Putin's People, taken to court immediately. You know, massive threat to her and her publishment. Look what happened to Carol Cadwallader on her own without a publisher behind it when it came to Aaron Banks's meetings with the Russian embassy. Uh, Tom, Burg- uh, Tom Burgess, yes, there is... The law firms of Britain, of London, under English law, it's not Scottish law, have maintained, and we've had them, we've had them at Fertesh, a massive, well-funded campaign. Maybe you say it's legitimate to silence journalism on this subject because rich oligarchs can afford these kind of chilling legal suits. That Even if you can win, it'll take you so long to drain all your energy. Uh, you'd be out of funds, a small publisher like us, soon. And then thirdly, yeah, complicity. I mean... 
I know of senior journalists who knew this stuff three or four years ago and sat a bit. I mean, I've written about Isabel Oakeshott. She knew in November 2017. I was talking to a team three months later. When's it coming? Getting the emails. I've actually done a deal with the Sunday Times. The Sunday Times knew November 2017. There's a memo. There's the indemnity. They have the emails. Nothing happens for six months. And it finally, seven months, it comes out in June, thanks to myself and, and Cal. Why? Why? What could be more important than a foreign, a hostile foreign power who has poisoned with radioactive agents, a UK citizen on the streets, has attacked a distant and killed with Novichok, another UK citizen? It beggars belief that they wanted to hide this. And I, you know, one day will know. And it's a head should roll. That's the long expression. Shame should be heaped on these people who did not watch over us. Yes. The lack of curiosity as well, though, Peter, is surely <coughs> the fact that many of the papers, these you know, the mainstream papers in this country, were simply invested in Brexit. So anything which might be seen to bring discredit to that enterprise was regarded yeah. as beyond bounds. Don't talk about this because it somehow brings discredit to the whole Brexit enterprise. Now, you can believe in the idea of Brexit or you can oppose it, but surely we have a right to know which foreign powers are seeking to meddle in our democratic elections. This is a brilliant bit of jiu-jitsu from Putin, yeah, because, you know, uh, you know, the th people hate to, to, to believe they could be influenced. Voters, I, I think Owen Jones said to me, well, I don't think a granny in you know Doncaster is going to be swayed by Russian bots, and you know there are other oligarchs other than Russians interfering in our elections, like the press. And the point is, I mean, it did just got so polarized, and that was the brilliant. That's what Putin does: left, right, divide and rule. Black Lives Matter, white racist gun groups. He funded them both in America, or fake versions of them, and that we are so tied up in our ideological pilot polarization, we don't do the thing we should do. And my argument of that by the way, at the time, is, look, you know, it's not about a second Brexit vote necessarily. This is what the DCMS report led by Damien Collins said. It's electoral security, you know, foreign funding in our election, non, uh, un, you know, shady entities pouring money into, into campaigns, uh, data security. All these recommendations, the Electoral Commission, have been overruled by Boris Johnson, who instead is seeking to neuter the Electoral Commission and bring it under the Cabinet Office so it doesn't do these investigations. That is complicity. And I think let's drop the Brexit thing. Let's drop the Remain thing. Let's just think about the security of our democracy, whether you're a Leave or a Remainer. And the big whistleblowers on this, let me repeat and remind people like Chris Wiley, who was research head of research at Cambridge Analytica, like Shamir Sani at Vote Leave Believe, who revealed the overspending, were Leavers. They were leavers who believed that actually beyond Brexit, our integrity, our protection from what is clearly now a murderous hostile foreign power was paramount. Peter, stay there, please. Uh, we're on until at least one o'clock. If you want to ask Peter any questions about what he has said, then feel free to do so. He's more than happy to take them. You can go over and read that article as you're listening as well over at bylinetimes.com. And don't forget, if you want to support the entire enterprise of Byline Radio and the Byline Times, please take out a subscription to the Byline Times. We're answerable to nobody except ourselves as journalists who try to report without fear or favour. And a subscription to the monthly Byline Times newspaper, 
will also help to support Byline TV, Byline Radio, the Byline Times podcast, which I produce and present, new episode out today, and this radio station. So please do it if you possibly can. If you can't, well, thanks for listening anyway and taking part. Now, I mentioned that I wanted to bring Rupert Reed in. Now, Rupert is an Associate Professor of Philosophy at the University of East Anglia. He's a former spokesman for Extinction Rebellion. And he was called on to Nick Ferrari's LBC show this morning. And I do encourage you to go and have a look at Green Rupert Reed, which is Rupert's Twitter handle, and just see how he was dealt with by Nick Ferrari. Essentially, Ferrari wanted to drive him into a corner in which he was asking him, which is the most important? Is it Vladimir Putin or is it the dangers of the extinction of the human race through the use of fossil fuels? Rupert tried to introduce a little bit of nuance into that very binary choice that he was offered. And when he refused to accept the binary choice, when he tried to introduce nuance, he was a victim of, wait for it, cancel culture. Uh, Rupert is here. Hello, Rupert. Welcome along to Byline Radio. Just uh, click your microphone on and you can join us. Hello, mate. How are you? Hi, Adrian. Yeah, I'm doing well. I've been gratified by all the support I've been getting on Twitter from people who are saying, maybe this is Nick Ferrari's you can grow concrete moment. Um, he really has... That's a reference to uh, <laughs> a, a talk radio presenter called Mike Graham who <laughs> made some nonsensical remark about growing concrete. Yeah. Like that. yeah. yeah. <laughs> so tell me first, just so we understand the context, Rupert, why were you invited on and how did it develop? Well, I was invited on to discuss uh, Ukraine and the connections with uh, the climate crisis. But evidently, as you say... Nick Ferrari was not actually interested in discussing this at all. And it's dismaying for reasons that are connected with the very important stuff that Peter's been telling you here. Peter's made very clear how the people who wanted Brexit were in many cases the same people who were soft on the the Russians. Now many of those same people have suddenly flipped to being uh, warmongers and at the same time they're people who are trying to minimize the risk to us all of dangerous climate change. Whereas, of course, the reality, which I was trying to convey to Nick Ferrari and his audience, who, as I say, have really turned against him over this, the reality is that fossil fuels fuel Putin. That he, that's what his power comes from. And that he's going to really have us over a barrel if we don't get our act together in terms of you know, getting serious this year on insulation, on using less energy, on moving to real renewables, etc., the only thing we have going for us in this horrendous Ukraine situation is that he's gone to war now rather than in the autumn or the winter. So we've got several months to get our act together. But if we don't, we are in very, very serious trouble. But Nick Ferrari didn't want any of that kind of uh, nuance. He simply wanted to create some kind of crazy situation of saying that either climate change is more important or Putin, the nuclear threat, is more important. It's a bit like saying, would you rather die by drowning or by asphyxiation? Um, <laughs> and uh, yeah, and, and the connection, just so, again, I'm sure our listeners are up to speed with this, uh, Rupert, but the, the suggestion has been made, for example, that Britain should once again look at fracking, for example, which yeah. would, of course, release more carbon into the atmosphere to reduce our dependency upon Vladimir Putin, on Russian gas in particular, but also Russian oil. So should we be seeking other forms of fossil fuel energy because we can no longer rely on Russian 
oil and gas. And, and, and that's kind of where the debate starts, really, isn't it? But, but exactly. then, as you say, there's, a, there's, another, there's another way you can go to this, which is to say, let's simply move away from our reliance on fossil fuel altogether. Yeah, and until we do, we're not safe from petro-dictators like Putin. One crucial thing to be aware of, of course, these are all the kinds of things I wanted to talk about in LBC, but didn't get the chance. One crucial thing to be aware of is that, of course, we have a liberalised market in um, natural gas and oil. So if we produce more in the UK, doesn't mean that we are able to use more of it here in the UK. The stuff that we can reliably use in the UK is, wait for it, Insulation is energy such as solar and wind, which is available and produced and for use right here. Um, The the arguments are really quite overwhelming for why we should move away absolutely rapidly now. Obviously, if we'd have done it years ago, if we'd have done it years ago, we wouldn't be in this pickle. He wouldn't have us over a barrel. But, you know, better late than than never. Yeah. And and Peter, uh, talking about the various forces that are at work and that lack of curiosity by journalists, uh, Extinction Rebellion, a group with whom you've been associated, of course, have been on the receiving end of those traditional tabloid smear tactics and shock tactics. And the underlying arguments that Extinction Rebellion sought to make were very often covered over by, I think, a very traditional British greasy smear of of shock and outrage and how dare they stop me getting to work on time yeah i mean that was more the insulation people wasn't it but i I, just to explain i mean i think uh, xr came to byline festival two or three years ago uh we you know as byline times as a journalist i you know i'm listened to all sides i would say that Extinction Rebellion have definitely been demonised. And one of the clearest moments, most shocking moments of that, was when they um, blockaded a print plant belonging to Rupert Murdoch. And as it came out in court, uh, Priti Patel, who went to Murdoch's wedding, uh, along with her husband and Michael Gove, rang the chief constables to see what was going on, was clearly, you know, felt that Murdoch's interests were at the heart of all this. This is all the time when she was delaying the Daniel Morgan Independent Panel Report, which involves Murdoch journalists and a notorious detective agency in South London. And then the smears come. I, you know, absolutely. And, and I see we've seen the laws changed about demonstrations to protect the vested interests of certain oligarchs. Now, they're not all Russian. You know, some might be American citizens born in Australia or from other countries. And I think Rupert makes another thing we've traced on Byline Times throughout the last three or four years is the relationship between other hedge funds, other interests like the Koch brother, only one left now in the US. I, they're carbon change, they are climate change denialists. They moved, they moved in great support for Trump. And then weirdly into COVID denialism and anti-vax stuff. And a lot of them are back, well, half a sporting Russia. There is a concerted interest. You can see it from tech billionaires like Peter Thiel, who believes, oh, well, the world should go down to only one billion people. And obviously he would survive that. And are kind of disaster capitalist prodding Armageddon for their own selfish reasons. I'd put, you know, and Putin's oligarchs are kind of in the same, not both, same luxury yacht. Yeah, go on, Peter. Go on, Rupert. Yes. uh, Sorry, I was just going to chime in there to to what Peter was uh, was saying. 
and uh, and say uh, again, you know, this is absolutely right. And the the interests of big money here, uh, in terms of incredibly dangerous, reckless, short-termist ploys that will um, get them some quick money, but at the expense of us all. You know, this really is about this Ukraine crisis is an absolutely vital moment. It's a it's a question of whether we're going to have a livable future or not. We've got to make the shift now. If we go for more fracking now, it will take years. It will be incredibly carbon profligate. It will pour money into the purses of these same people. It will not get us any kind of genuine energy independence from the the corrupt fossil fuel system um, that we're all in. So, you know, the stakes really are incredibly high. Yeah, it just it just strikes me. And, and, you know, this is out with any particular political affiliation or bias, as Peter says. We're journalists. We just try to tell the truth and report the truth. But regardless of Labour or Tory or Lib Dem or SNP, regardless of whether or not you accept the reality of climate change, I think there are still a few people out there who are in denial, but... If you said, as as a nation, and you were interested in the well-being of your people, would you not simply introduce building regulations tomorrow that insist that all homes are really, really well insulated so that even the poorest people don't have to be subsidised in terms of their energy costs so that we as a nation are less shaken by the winds of energy crises as they happen, insulating every new home in Britain to an extremely high standard and retrofitting, if you like, insulation to past homes. That would create jobs. It would create wealth. It would also ensure that the energy companies didn't have the stranglehold over over poorer people in this country and it ensure that tyrants like putin could, could not hold us to ransom because of his, his oil and gas supplies i mean I, I struggle to see any arguments against that from a from a national point of view I, I do however look at the significant donations made by property tycoons and house building companies to the conservatives am i just being cynical rupert well, I'm afraid, Adrian, you're absolutely right. And it is just terrifying that the way our government is going with this, unlike other governments such as uh, Germany's, um, seems to be to say, yeah, let's go back into heavier into fossil fuels again, which, as I say, will take years to come online, be carbon profligate and dangerous, won't get us out of the system that, uh, that Putin uh, wants us to be in. Um, a massive dose of insulation can be done very quickly. And here's a, one of the really ridiculous facts that I wanted to get onto LBC this morning but wasn't permitted to when Ferrari cancelled me. A third of British lofts have no insulation. Just think about that. That is an absolute open goal. Absolutely. I'm just uh, reading something from Housing Today as we chat, Rupert, uh, talking about one-fifth more than one-fifth of donations to Conservative Party between 2010 and 2020 came from property developers. And I, I, the, the interests of property companies and construction companies to not insulate to the highest standard because it will cost them money in the short term, it seems to me has been allowed to override the needs of poorer people in society and the whole of society in terms of combating climate change. I mean, it really does look as, as open and shut to me as that. 
you're not you're not going to disagree with that riff as i'm taking it <laughs> sorry i was trying to get my mic on yeah no i i completely uh, agree uh, this is a vital moment a vital inflection point you know this is one of those very rare opportunities that comes along periodically to reshape our our political economy it has to be taken the, the government needs to be pressurized to take it they're not going to take it or not going to take it enough so local authorities need to to step up um, organizations such as uh, Extinction Rebellion and Just Stop Oil obviously are strongly making uh, their point and their, their point is more pertinent uh, than ever. Uh, one of the things that I hope we'll see over coming months is people actually taking these matters into their own hands. I would like to see, for example, a huge ground up campaign which will actually start going around and doing a lot of the insulation and other stuff that needs doing. That would, it seems to me, be an incredibly empowering and powerful response to the crazy uh, inaction of our government at this time. Rupert, stay there if you will. And if people have got questions for you, I'm sure you'll be uh, only too happy to take them. Uh, before I go to Tim, by the way, who's uh, requested access to speak and we'll let him on shortly. Can I just check, Rupert, is there anything else that you wanted to say on Nick Ferrari on LPC that you haven't been able to, that we can allow you the platform on Byline Radio to? Well, Adrian, you, that's very kind of you. But you know what? I think we've more or less covered it. And it didn't take that long, <laughs> did it? Um, you, ha- so... you have got a book, though. You have got a book, though, Rupert, haven't you? Oh, I've always got a book. Yeah, uh, you can. <laughs> but my uh, my my recent book uh, on deep adaptation is actually quite uh, relevant because the crisis that we're in now is going to be terminal for our civilization unless we move very very fast in the kind of direction that I've been outlining. And and may I just also uh, say once again what a pleasure it is to have a, a civil discussion about these matters. And that's one of the reasons I'm very proud to be associated with uh, Byline Times. Uh, great to have you on, Rupert, and uh, please uh, spread the word. Let's speak to Tim Ashby. Hello, Tim. How are you doing? Tim, you have to just click your microphone on now that you're through. Just click your microphone on, and we'll be able to speak to you in a second. Hello, Tim. Are you there now? Yes, I'm here. Can you hear me? Uh, we can, loud and clear, Tim. Yeah. Do you want to ask a question or just make a comment? I'd just like to make a comment about um, Peter's statement, really, and it seems to me that basically the whole establishment, the Tory party particularly, but um, the security uh, services, they're all basically guilty of treason by allowing all of this Russian influence to corrupt our politics. Am I being too strong? Does anybody think that they're not guilty of treason? But if they're I mean, tre- treason, I would understand. I'll let Peter speak in a minute, Tim. A treason, I would understand to be the active attempt to overthrow the government of this country or the, the way of being of this country. So, I, I, I mean, I'll ask Peter. It, do, it doesn't seem to me that what Peter's described quite meets the definition of treason as I understand it. It may be very disreputable and it should be called out. Peter, I think treason perhaps may be going a bit a bit too far, wandering into Daily Mail territory, maybe. Yeah, enemies of the people. Um, uh, <laughs> shades of that. I remember this debate about Trump and obviously the laws are different there, where actually the special prosecutor said their evidence he did collude with Russians in the election. Just the questions about whether you could actually prosecute a sitting president. Treason, I don't know what the law is on that. Um, and so as any legal definition, I understand why British people 
anybody who cares about Ukraine and human rights and our security could feel the actions of senior politicians and businessmen, mainly men, was treasonous. I think what we can say, really, without a shadow of a doubt, looking the way did little in 2014 when this war began, in a way, if we're always looking for historical analogies, and, and, and in this case, there are many, because it's the first war, major war in Europe since 1945, was that the first phase of annexing Korea, uh, Crimea and uh, invading eastern Donbass was like the annexation of Sudetenland, and now is like the invasion of Poland. I mean, they're crass analogies, but there are historical echoes. And as happened in Britain in the 1930s, particularly under Chamberlain, uh, a process of appeasement has gone on. I think the other element I could say pretty much without, I think, you know, any libel suits or indeed any kind of moral hyperbole is that a process of corruption has gone on. The two sanctioned individuals, actually Deripaska was sanctioned a while back, but he had this big yacht. Oh, hello, Peter. You're, line, uh, you're back. You've come back. Your line disappeared. Yeah. Go on, sorry. Yeah, sorry, Abramovich, the money, you know, he his sports laundering, as it were, while he ran these businesses in the background, which are supporting Putin. I think we can say that what not only have we shown signs of appeasement, we've shown something which I didn't, don't think happened in the 1930s. There weren't billionaire German oligarchs here entertaining all our actors, taking over our media, running our sports club. It's, it's a combination of oligarchical corruption and disastrous political appeasement for which I'd say not completely, partially Ukrainians are paying for with their blood. One other element I'll just add into that, and there's an intellectual disinformation operation. Carol Cadwallader talks about brilliantly. Her thread will be in the next edition of Byline Times next week. Is the way we have been bamboozled by disinformation and propaganda. And I must call out elements of the stop the war left who have ignored what went and said oh they're all fascists i saw them i heard them oh and i went to kiev they weren't fascists they were the opposite yeah they were fighting fascism uh in the Maidan revolution quite clearly but said, oh no it's all the azov battalion all right wing they turned a blind eye to that in 2014 and then something i don't really know that much about but people like oz katagy who's out on the ground reporting sometimes for us in kiev does uh is syria we turned a blind eye and the Russians enacted the same total war civilian targeting as they're doing now, use chemical weapons, and elements of the left defended him and defended Assad. That, to me, is like the Spanish Civil War, almost, so using these analogies from the 30s, because that's all we've, our recent, we've got to go on, really, compared with the last 70 years that, you know, they took the wrong side, the side of the sort of fascistic side in Syria. I'm going to look in more into that. I wish I'd known more about it. I obviously worked with Bellingcat. I knew who were brilliant to bring out the use of chemical weapons there. But it's a dark, dark period in our history, both internally and in international affairs. Yeah. Uh, Tim, I don't know if you're a football fan. I noticed that Roman Abramovich, who is the owner of Chelsea, who's recently announced his decision to sell the club, has finally been sanctioned 
by the UK government today, one of uh, seven more Russian oligarchs who were sanctioned today. And uh, it is said that Abramovich, this is the official UK government statement relating to the sanctions, said he's had a close relationship for decades with Vladimir Putin. This association has included obtaining a financial benefit or other material benefit from Putin and the government of Russia. Now, if that is the basis for the sanction today... Why have we not sanctioned Abramovich before? We've had the the measures through uh, Bill Browder's fantastic work. He brought a version of the Magnitsky Act, named in honour of a lawyer that he used to work with in Russia called Sergei Magnitsky. He brought the Magnitsky Act to the UK. It was supported by the UK Parliament. We were then told there was going to be an economic crime bill in 2017, although it's only this week been introduced into Parliament. You know, this sense of politicians and of government, Tim, sitting on their hands. Somebody like Abramovich, who's had this very close relationship, which everybody has been aware of with Putin, simply allowed to operate at the highest levels of English football and to, to sports wash his personal brand and sports wash the Russian brand. Well, this is just a symptom of how in bed with Russian money the ruling Conservative Party is and therefore the government of the day is. They are so reliant on and in love with Russian money that they just turn a blind eye to anything that could be wrongly wrong attached to that source of the money. They don't care. They just want the money. Tim, great to speak to you. Thanks for joining in on Byline Radio today. Please spread the word. This is a radio revolution, and you are all part of it if you're listening now on Byline Radio. We are, we hope, free and fearless journalists. We don't have anybody pulling our strings. There's no oligarch. There's no proprietor. There's no corporate interest telling us what to do. The funding for the whole Byline enterprise comes from ordinary people taking out a subscription to the Byline Times, which is a brilliant monthly newspaper edited by our wonderful colleague, Hardeep Matharu. That's a great read. But additionally, a subscription to that newspaper helps to support this radio station. It helps support the Byline Times podcast. Check that out on all your available podcast platforms. New episode out today. It helps to support Byline TV and it helps to support our brilliant news-breaking website, bylinetimes.com. If you want to find out how to subscribe, that is where you go, bylinetimes.com. going to invite one or two more people into the conversation now. Rex the Dog has requested access to our airwaves. Hello, Rex the Dog. I don't know where Rex the dog is. I can't quite bring... Uh, let's try Mary then. Let's see if Mary uh, can speak. Hello, Mary. Hello, Mary. Yeah, Hi. Put your Hi. I, I, there you go. I'm How are in you? America. I appreciate your work Great. so much. Heidi Kud is a friend of mine, and I know she's written for you guys. Um, I host a pod. Oh, Heidi Kud? Yes. Yeah, she's she's been on my yeah. show. I host... I'm going to do a shameless plug. I host a podcast called Lush Left Media, and I've you know, my kind of area where I've sort of landed on is the, the far right wing. Like the, I, I listen to Bannon's show every day and I'm so sorry about that Bannon was involved in your Brexit movement and Cambridge Analytica. So my question to you guys, because you, there's some, been some amazing articles with Byline Times about the far right wing propping up 
and you know Putin's involvement. Can you can you talk about that? Because I mean, Bannon every day is trying to get the 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 GOP here to basically be like pro Putin. I listen, I listen to the show every day. Do you have any thoughts on that? Is that within the realm? That's an interesting point. And, and again, just uh, Mary, forgive me. Some British listeners may not know the GOP is is the oh, I'm the sorry. Reference to the Republican yes. Party. It's all right. It's I okay. apologize. That's fine. <laughs> Two nations divided by. Well, no, we're all together now. We're all together. It's liberal democracy versus this. <laughs> uh, Peter, did you want to talk about that? I know our colleague Sean Norris has written a lot about Russian far right, Russian oligarchs funding far right groups in Europe, and mm. again, this idea that Ukrainians are the, are the fascists or the Nazis in this is is frankly laughable. <laughs> It's very interesting um, how that the ideological connections and the money connections, which we've always written about, but there is it isn't just venality. Groups, uh, I got attacked by Glenn, Glenn Greenwald, who used to be oh, God. Cons- considered a left wing commentator. Yeah, again, yesterday. another person that I apologize to everybody for. <laughs> I, I've known Glenn. <laughs> I've actually known Glenn for quite a long time, or other oh. interacted with him since two thousand and. Six, seven, eight. When he's very anti-Obama on the American website. Yeah, we did, we disavow him now, just so you know. Like the you know the normal yeah. part of America disavows but, him. <laughs> but interesting, I met him on this left-wing site, Daily Kos, where I first started blogging. I worked a bit on the Obama campaign, very anti-Obama, apparently from the left. Now he regularly appears on Fox News, and when he attacked me yesterday, it's always great to be attacked by these people because right. you get their trolls. You find out who their trolls are. And I was expecting a whole load of kind of, well, you don't care about brown people being bombed, sort of sort of some kind of crypto left-wing rhetoric. It was all make America great again, people. So he's gone. So the interesting thing about Bannon and people like Greenwald, uh, but particularly Bannon is, you know, he obviously came, started Cambridge Analytica here in 2013, went to recruit people at quite a well-known thing called the Young Britons Foundation, which was a Mercer-funded, Robert Mercer, the right. billionaire, who also uh, co-founded, you know, the finance of Cambridge Analytica, funded Trump. Um, so Bannon is clearly has fascist sympathies. Uh, Julius Evola, he's a, a, a fascist, is one of his heroes, a Catholic right. fascist. And we now know... And, and Dugan. And Dugan, and he's met with Dugan. And we now know also that obviously people said, oh, Putin's so clever about this. Oh, Dugan has no influence on Putin. Well, Putin is following exactly his plan set out in 1997. Separate Britain from the EU. I might take over Ukraine, take over, marginalize America. The other person's Ivan Ilyin, a a Russian fascist who he moved his bones and got them reinterred in Moscow. The Russian Orthodox Church, masculinity, you know, the strong man, he's riding on a bear. No, it's actually a horse, isn't it? But people put him on a bear, bare-chested, the homophobia, the laws against LGBT people. Right. Uh, yeah, the are you laws aware, against domestic violence. Are you aware that he had on, um, so Peter Thiel, uh, not Peter Thiel, um, <laughs> who's another one, but uh, uh, Eric Prince, you know, the Prince of Darkness. Yeah, the yeah, yeah, the, the founder of Blackwater. He, yeah. yeah, so he's on the show, and I was hoping, God, please have, like, Media Matter. It's this website here that did, that debunks yeah. right wing. Now, okay. I was praying somebody would clip it, you know, with bigger reach than I have. Mm. And th- sure enough, they, they didn't clip the entire thing. But 
he's got Eric Prince sitting there and they're going on and on about how Putin isn't woke and they love that. Literally, these are the well, words they're using. He's, he's, is, and he's, and they're talking to each other kind of, ba- you know, back and forth laughing and they're like, is he for, is he for trans bathrooms and LGBT? So you know that that Bannon is a part of that whole traditionalist and yeah. that 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 you know he hates like the when the when the Catholic Church didn't do uh, Latin Mass anymore or, yeah. or you know yeah, basically yeah. and so there's that there's that thing but I gotta tell you and and I I know I'm limited in time here I wanted to say something very quickly about the left so I started my show kind of on the Bernie left. And I had like Rashida Tlaib has been on my show. She's Bernie, just to explain to people, Bernie, that Bernie Saunders, there. Bernie so Sanders. Sorry, sorry. Yeah. And I, I had like Bernie inspired candidates on my show. That's how I started. That you know are in Congress, and like a couple of them voted against helping out Ukraine last night. Yeah, so there was a big uh, vote. Yeah. So yeah. my so it, it, and there was like the Bernie Sanders movement was very similar to on the your side of the pond, the Jeremy Corbyn movement. Mm. And I wanted I just I see so many people but it's smaller this time around. So the first time I really looked into Russian disinformation was around Syria because you had like the sort of anti-imperial like that the left that's part of kind of the Bernie left here in America that were they they sound they they were like they hated the white helmets they sounded insane okay and it's that same faction that's like they're acting crazy around this around yeah. what's with I, Ukraine I just, right now. Bernie Sanders, by the way, to be fair to him, he's been very strong. Yeah, he's and been Cor- very good. Right. And, and Corbyn himself, and there's people around Corbyn, Andrew Murray, who went to the separatist states, supported them. Seamus Milne, his advisor, went to meet Putin and Valdai, this big conference after the annexation of Korea. Right. But I think the major problem is on the right. That's where you have, the, the you know, this war on woke, which came from nowhere two years ago, really, after right. Black Lives Matter is clearly funded and supported from the Kremlin. Their chief patriarch went on about it only three days ago, as, as Sean Norris has written on Byline Times, and she tracks the money. Malafiev, I think, from She's Russian She's amazing. I, I'd love to inter- I'd love for her to come on my show. She's Hold on, this is our show. Oh, yeah, stop pitching. <laughs> <laughs> listen, listen, Mary, we'll put you in touch. Drop me a DM. And I'll put you in touch. Well, follow show. me. Follow me on Twitter. So I tried. I tried the other day, and I couldn't. I couldn't. I didn't. And I didn't want to bother Heidi. You know, she's uh, doing her own. She's busy. So, yeah. but thank All you right. guys so much for your work. Thank you. Thank you, Mary. Thank you so much. You're listening to Adrian Goldberg here on Byline Radio. Peter Jukes, the executive editor of Byline Times, is with us. We had a fantastic conversation as well with uh, Rupert Reid a little bit earlier on. Rupert had been biffed off LBC by Nick Ferrari for refusing to answer a ridiculous binary question about which was more important, fighting Putin or fighting climate change. It was nonsense. You don't get that kind of idiocy here on Byline Radio. You get straight talking, but we like to listen to what people have got to say. We like to explore the stories, get the experiences, but also inform you, arm you with the facts, which is what Peter Jukes is doing right now. Incredible article over at bylinetimes.com about the appeasement of Putin 
by those who should know better within the British establishment, including the security and intelligence services and including Boris Johnson. To support our work at Byline Times, don't forget to take out a subscription to the Byline Times. Find out how to subscribe at bylinetimes.com. And I should just say on this, by the way, I had a lovely um, direct message in while we've been broadcasting from a listener, just bear with me a second while I'll try and fish this one out because I, th- I thought it was uh, just um, a, a really moving comment. This is from Martin. He says, I would very much like to support the work that you are doing. Unfortunately, I am disabled and living on legacy benefits means I'm always just about making ends meet financially. However, if there's another way I can help, do please let me know. Really enjoying the show today. Very interesting. Let's hope this is just the beginning. Well, it is just the beginning, Martin. And please, we understand that in these times there are people who can't afford to take out a subscription to the Byline Times. That's fine as well. You are very much part of our family and we do welcome you with us we encourage you if you can to support us with a subscription but if you can't that's okay you're welcome to just on that yeah on that that point i mean we do understand very much particularly energy you know the cost of living increases that some people don't have money and people who do there's other ways they can give us more money to make it um, work available for those who can't. Our website will always be free. We'll never have any paywalls. So our breaking news, our big stories um, will be accessible to anyone. And it's a public service. Obviously, you know, the bigger and growing team, we need to pay people like yourself. Nobody gets paid very much on this, but so every subscription helps. But if people can't uh, pay, the one other way they can help us just spread the word. You know, tell other people about it. Give them, you know, uh, link them to the website. Tell them to sign up. Yeah, a retweet, a share on Facebook, a mention on LinkedIn. We we don't have anything as oh shallow or indeed expensive as a marketing budget. So if people can just spread the word about us, listen in and tell other people and share the word, that's brilliant. Because what we're doing today, I think, is the start of something. We're going to be on. Every day, Monday to Friday at noon, with what the papers don't say. Over time, no promises, but we're hoping to grow Byline Radio. But that's our commitment as of today. Monday to Friday at noon, every day, what the papers don't say. Hosted by yours truly, or a suitable replacement. So, uh, yeah, here we are. It is a radio revolution. Let's speak to uh, Imperious Guardsman. Hello, Imperious Guardsman. Welcome along. Howdy. Uh, just wanted to chip in, actually, that uh, the way to defeat Putin um, is to also fight climate change, because uh, if we'd been building nuclear reactors over the past 10 years, we wouldn't be stuck on his natural gas. Well, it's interesting you, you mentioned nuclear imperious guardsmen. Of course, we've got this situation around Chernobyl at the moment and, and quite a scary situation. Yeah. Well, I mean, I mean, you know, like yeah. nuclear reactors are fine unless, you know, someone starts shelling the damn thing. But <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, and like, you know, Ukraine was able to is able to maintain its electric grid and, you know, a lot of you know humanitarian services simply because they're running their reactors over time. And, you know, the fact that the Kharkiv reactor was shelled and the containment building was able to resist that. Like, I mean, you know, it, it can take a plane flying into it. Like, you know, unless the unless the Russians are there for long enough to, you know, compromise their own position, like they're not getting through that. Yeah, I mean, there are there are people in the Green Movement who would support 
the development of nuclear power. I think there are plenty more, certainly here in the UK, who would oppose nuclear power, but say that there are other things. And if you had our conversation earlier with Rupert Reed, and Rupert was a member of uh, Extinction Rebellion, a, a, a group committed to fighting climate change. But in the UK, we have incredible resources of wind power and wave power, probably not quite so much of, of solar power, but well, we could also do simple things like insulate our homes to a standard, you know, insist that all new homes are built to a carbon-neutral standard, which I understand is the situation in Germany, but it's not not the situation here, and I'm pretty sure not in the United States either. Well, the, the issue is that that's, that's actually kind of a distraction um, because uh, the problem with wind and solar, right, is that you can't actually match the energy you're getting with the current demand, right? Like if everyone goes and makes tea at like, you know, 3 p.m., you can't like, you know, stand there with, with your mage's staff and, and get the wind to blow a little harder. Um, and, and so to respond to that uh, change in energy, uh, change in energy demand, uh, like you have, uh, you know, different kinds of energy production that can respond, you know, quicker. Uh, and the thing is, the go-to for this uh, is natural gas, because, you know, the, the short response time of a natural gas turbine. And given the sort of active measures like we've seen Putin employ over the years, like he's deliberately pushed, uh, you know, Russian natural gas and sort of had had influence in a lot of green movements to push them away from nuclear power like um you know that's there's there's many examples of this in germany um and it's like the current position of the green movement and like you know even even now like while you know ukrainians are being shelled like like the green party doesn't want to explain to its constituents like the sort of the actual scientific consensus of nuclear power and i'm just sort of in utter shock here that like you know, it's, it's, it's already too late for the solution to do anything, right? Because um, we are where we are. And, like, the annoying thing is, like, we're in the position where the only way to win this fight is is to just, you know, turn on the taps and drill, baby, drill. And, you know, maybe maybe eventually come back after we're done and, like, switch everything out for nuclear and clean up our mess. Okay, Imperious Guardsman, thank you. That's an interesting perspective. Appreciate it. If anybody wants to comment on that, uh, by all means do. Let's bring in Misplaced at Home. Hello. Hello. Um, I'm German and I'm living in France. So I'm right in the middle of this um, discussion about uh, the, um, well, the, 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 the new Green Deal, which includes apparently all of a sudden nuclear power again which of course is um, total rubbish because um, the, the main argument here is that um, what the gentleman who um, has just um, contributed to the discussion uh, added was uh, that nuclear power somehow magically can uh, bridge the gap between um, the wind that is all of a sudden not blowing anymore when everybody wants to make tea. Um, the thing is, you can't um, just uh, switch a nuclear power um, unit on and it comes on and it's producing power. It takes days, sometimes weeks, to adjust the nuclear pl power plant to the demand which um, is on the market. So 
and there is the 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 small point that we still haven't found a solution um for where to put the nuclear waste there isn't there is not one facility in the in the world that is deemed safe enough to take in nuclear waste for like two million years well the so, the issue there is that nuclear waste is unburnt fuel and that's uh, an inefficiency of the current regime of designs because you know we've been running yeah, the same we, reactors we, we, we we've been have, running the, we we've been running the same reactors since like 1970 yeah but we don't have the the we, we don't have more than the 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 actual regime as you call it well um well, uh, and let, we let, of course imperious sorry, sorry imperious you, sorry you've had a really good say can can we let miss placed at home finish what she's saying i I, I know what point she's making because well, I've the rest, no, the rest of us, though, <laughs> the rest of us, though, imperious may not. So, can you please let her finish? Thank you. Go on, Miss Blaisdell. Yeah, and so, um, and the thing is, we we still haven't found a lot of so solutions for this um, this way out of our energy crisis, and we have had more than one sixty years now of nuclear uh, power. In, in Europe, an experience of more than six decades, and we still haven't found critical solutions to this. And the, the, the point that it's so cheap is only because it's so heavily subsidized. Um, for example, all the costs of dealing with nuclear waste and all the security issues are dealt with by, um, by the government. So they pay for it. And so um, the prices, um, the, the price of nuclear power, is not the real price we're 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 paying. It's much much higher. So um, the thing is, um, nuclear power plants take ages to build. They take ages to to be taken down again after um, they they've they're well basically sell best date so when when they're decommissioned. Yeah. Yeah, when they're decommissioned, that was the word I was looking yeah, for. Yeah. Thank you. <laughs> and um, so, all it is 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 a is a is it's it's a huge leap backwards when we have so much um, new options now, and if only a fraction of the money that we pumped into the nuclear power industry or the nuclear industry that is um, uh, into new. Uh, green energies, renewable energies, we, we would be much, much further in the discussion and we would have more technical solutions. And what I'm, um, what I'm trying to say is uh, this is an opportunity. There is enough pressure on the market now that we actually have to look for new options. And I think it's an opportunity we should seize. A very interesting point. Thank you from Misplaced at Home. Come on, Imperius, you're welcome to come back then. The two questions that Misplaced at Home raised were the fact that much of the cost of nuclear is actually borne by the taxpayer through governments and the issue of long-term nuclear waste, radioactive waste, has never really been resolved. Well, um, it has... Well, theoretically, it has in multiple ways. Um, and I actually want to sort of turn her argument back on itself uh, because, you know, every, every single technological application argument uh, can be applied to, you know, the next generation of, of nuclear plants that, that haven't really seen any service. Like we, we kind of skipped a generation or two 
um, and never put them into production due to like the strictness of the regulatory regimes. Uh, and as, as to the nuclear fuel issue, like uh, nuclear fuel waste is simply unburnt fuel. And uh, one of the sort of main factors that we haven't been able to sort of capitalize on the research for fuel reprocessing is that it's just not economically viable. But now we have sanctions on, or we're looking at sanctions on, on Russian uranium, right? Uh, so, you know, we, we should have been doing it earlier as, as a matter of course. Um, but additionally to that, like every, every reactor that we have, uh, nowadays is uh, a solid fuel reactor, right? Every civil uh, nuclear reactor works off solid fuel. The issue with that fuel, right, is that uh, as as it gets burnt up, it expands. It gets less dense. And if you keep using it for long, for long enough, it will crack the containment on the rod. Like there are these little pellets that go into these tubes, right, generally speaking. And that's why you take them out of the reactor, not because like it's burnt out, like you're still, you still have like 95, 99% of the fuel or something like that, right? Just it's, it's unburnt. Um, so like the issue is that like, we aren't able to get, you know, uh, designs that have existed since the sixties that have been worked on and refined since the sixties that used liquid fuels that are easier to sort of work with, reprocess, contain, and just generally deal with in an industrial process in a way that's safe and efficient and easy to deal with. And the problem is that like these discussions either focus on like specific events or specific designs that like are the inheritors of 60 years of bad design decisions that have sort of been piled on top of each other. Um, <laughs> well, listen, Imperius, can I say, I mean, no, certainly I'm not a, 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 an expert in nuclear power plants. I think you've raised a very interesting point. And, uh, you know, listeners will have a view, I think, of whether they want to see a, a nuclear future or a non-nuclear future. I think one thing that we can all agree on is that we need to wean ourselves off as a society. We need to wean ourselves off fossil fuels. And we need to be looking at alternative sources of energy in the meantime, because although perhaps we may use move to a lower energy future for now, clearly we are a society, particularly in the West, that consumes an awful lot of energy. I'll, I'll happily chat with you another time, though, specifically about nuclear power and, and maybe get an expert on to discuss that. But thank you. I really appreciate you joining in. And thank you also to uh, Misplaced at Home as well. It's been great to have you both on. Thank you. Uh, let's speak to um, Rick T, who wants to join in. Hello, Rick. We'll get Rick there with a moment. Go on, Rick, click your microphone on and you're there. Hello, Rick. Welcome. Yeah, you're loud and clear. Okay. Go on, Rick. You're on byline. Hi. Um, I, I just wanted to, um, maybe I, well, so it's more of a, a question, really. Uh, you know, I, I, I follow the, um, sort of read a lot of the byline times and um, kind of really admire your work and, and also uh, Carol Cadwallader. And, um, but I, I just, you know, energy independence is obviously quite important in trying to um, remove some of um, kind of Russia's power and, and, the, and the threats that they pose. But it, over the long term, um, it, it seems like Russia has just been really successful in their disinformation campaigns, and um, and surely that that is. I, I see, you know, by a long time, you your headline: Russia's fifth battle space. You know, that that really information war. And you know, that's obviously been Carol's, um, uh, you know, a huge aspect of of her work over the last few years. Um, 
and my question is really about, um, you know, is there potentially a weakness in, in the way um, those, you know, yourselves and, and maybe um, sort of other, other people are trying to, to fight this disinformation, um, the way that they're not able to necessarily successfully kind of um, break into uh, sort of almost one of the echo chambers of, you know, the, the right wing and, and, and the, the, those groups that are, are spreading the misinformation. Because a lot of the way in which um, this information is presented can come across as being um, quite academic. It's, it's, um, it's just very interesting, but maybe it appeals to thinking people. But is there um, is there necessarily any kind of campaign that that, that you that you know of or that, that your organisation supports, which tries to maybe, um, yeah, you know, really just just fight or almost you, you think of Russia and the way in which they they fight um, they spread the disinformation through really organised um, networks and and trying to break into um, sort of different different areas. Is there, sorry, I don't know if that really makes sense, but. Um, no, no, Ricky, it's, it's an interesting As, question. Peter Jukes is still with us. Uh, Peter? Yeah. It's a very, very good question. I remember the early days when um, Chris Wiley came forward from Cambridge Analytica and I met him you know, several months before the story was published, talking about, is there a Cambridge Analytica for good? Um, I, there were t two main things to say there. Yes. I mean, we're, we're a journalistic organisation, so we don't really campaign, though we have, like... At the festival, particularly platform people like Fair Vote and XR, people who do campaign. And Carol has this great citizens group. Um, and it is our job, I think, to give people the information to make up their own minds and then them citizens to take it forward. So we have a, a, not an astroturfed, as all these Brexit, so many phenomena were, fake grassroots movement. We've had these spontaneous movements like the byline networks, which do take these messages forward about evidence and the rule of law, you know, basic principles of liberal, with a small L, not liberal democrat, liberal democracy, these sort of tenets we built up at 250 years of a free press and uh, a transparent constitution. I think there are great people who have done that on the propaganda space, like led by donkeys. I think finally Twitter and Facebook, thanks to lots of complaints and lobbying and, you know, disastrous review, revelations have clamped down on false inauthentic networks on their platforms that Facebook could do a lot more. But the real people I learned this from, there's some great articles. I say, Stanislav Isaias, oh, such a grim story. I re-upped it the other day. He was in a prison, a journalist in a prison in the Russian-occupied Donetsk region and tortured and saw people being tortured. Um, as another, Ian Overton has written some amazing essays of people who are victims in Ukraine. And even on the information space and corruption and where it leads, it all ties up with the Trump impeachment, if you want to look at that. The Ukrainians have really been showing us how to fight back. And I'll end with this thought, because I hope to talk to Peter Pomerantsev, you know, the the Russian background, but British author who first really wrote brilliantly about Putin's propaganda. Um, this is that we don't fight an information war with an information war. What Zelensky is doing is not information war. He's fighting the truth. His incredible speeches, the morale and bravery of the Ukrainian people, that is not an information operation. 
that is fighting back. That is legitimate. That is authentic, sincere, passionate behavior from people who believe what they're doing, unlike the information operations. And the inauthenticity of all those accounts, all those arguments, falls away. Putin, his, you know, at the end of his long table with his threats, nuclear threats, and all that, comparable to Zelensky, with that clarity, that truth wins. And so don't emulate the enemy at their own tactics. Use their energy, their force, their inauthenticity to turn it on themselves with authenticity and genuine passion. That's my true belief. That's why I'm not a cynic. I'm not a fatalist that I don't think Putin can win in the long run. I think Ukraine will be a shining example of resistance and heroism for us all to look up to. And that comes from some inner truth. Peter, thank you. We'll let you go if you want. I've got one more caller, I think, before we uh, wrap up. We will be back again tomorrow. So if you haven't had your chance to have your say today, we'll no doubt be addressing many of these, if not all of them, again tomorrow. I did just want to let Tamara uh, come in, though, before we close for today. Tamara, hello, how are you? Welcome. Hello. Um, I was um, just thinking about the uh, the new bill that's going to be passed surrounding journalism. Um, and I was wondering how concerned people are about that. Um, anything that embarrasses the government, or it, sorry, that is um, papers that are kind of released that could embarrass the government, a potential 14 years in prison. Like, it just, I feel like the bills that are being passed um, in Parliament are so, um, they're so restrictive. And we talk about what's going on in Russia and the clampdown on protest and the clampdown on journalism. We're not talking about what's happening here because the very same thing is happening. And that really concerns me. Journalists being sent to jail for exposing state secrets. Surely you're talking about Russia. <laughs> what, no, I win. No, no, you're not. You're talking about the new... Official Secrets Act. Or yeah, it's really it's just very very concerning Act. because I think the language is. I, I don't quote me on this, but I think the language is anything that embarrasses the government. If that's not um, North Korea style, um, uh, if that not if that's not um, complete clampdown on the freedom of press i don't know what is yeah i don't think the phrase is uh, embarrass the government i think the, the government is concerned about what it would regard as espionage or if you like there might be a legitimate question about espionage uh, foreign powers for example getting hold of information which might be embarrassing to the government but might also damage national security and then there is the thing where journalists, and they've done this over many years in, in many different platforms, have simply found out stuff that the government regards as confidential, that it doesn't want to be put out there, but which journalists do get out there, and it embarrasses the government. Now, that's the kind of journalism that is under threat by these proposed provisions. Yeah, because with something like that, the same with um, with with the bill about protests, it may not be this year or next year. It may be in five or ten years' time when they when this um, this control and power that they have now is is something that um, is easily just thrown around whenever they don't like what we're saying. So they may say right now, 
oh, we wouldn't use it for that. We wouldn't use, we, we you know, when, you know, the uh, the problem with power is that it goes to people's heads and then they use it whenever they want. Oh, absolutely. And and once it's on the statute book, that is the fear, Tamara, is that yeah. either this government or another government, and again, regardless of political colour, a government could encourage the police to prosecute using the provisions of the Official Secrets Act. And Yeah, and I think with the protest one, they can send you to, if they choose, um, they can stop you from going to protest and if you continue to go, jail you for up to 10 years. I mean, it's insane. Tamara, it, uh, a lot of people have said that this is a law that will effectively treat journalists as if they are spies, that they're kind of blurring that distinction between yeah. secrets that would threaten the security of the state, which I think even most journalists would acknowledge is a is a, a, a certainly a dangerous thing to do, something you would only do if you felt there was an absolute public interest to do it, and then stuff which embarrasses the government. And, you know, who decides that? Well, we have an independent judiciary in the UK, but how independent is it always? Yeah. <laughs> yeah I think you make sure. a really good point, Tamara. Thank you. But I'll stay on a little bit longer. Let's get uh, Sparkles into the conversation. Uh, Sparkles, welcome along. How are you? I was actually going to talk about the. Uh, I was going to come and say hi about the um, about a comment made about let's drill and then deal with the mess afterwards, which is I think. Is, uh, is this, this was from our, yeah. This was from our listener who was talking about. He wasn't talking about fracking, was, which is what no, that sounds he like. He was talking about nuclear power. No, it? yeah. Part of his comment was let's basically do the fracking and then we'll deal with that afterwards and build more nuclear power stations, which I just felt was a really really like bad idea so i just wanted i was just like that's even uh, is that what you took do you think do you think i, I missed that forgive me Spark. <laughs> do, do, do you think he was encouraging fracking as well as the development of nuclear oh yeah absolutely so he said he said yeah. you know we need to just drill to to try and hit some gas and then we'll have the mm. freedom from russia and then we can clean that up clean our mess up afterwards um and i just have to put it out there uh gold standard you know, what happened to that? That was a mess clean up afterwards and nothing's ever happened to it. And now the government can tell us <laughs> but, you know, how you know, much I've spark, spark, I, 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 Sorry to interrupt <laughs> you, Spark, because you, you sounded a bit in and out there, forgive me. But as I say, I come back to this point, and this is not... I, I, I just think if you start the fundamentals of the job of any government is to protect its people, that's its first responsibility, to look after its people. Now, if you were looking at in the in the round, and even before this crisis... If you said the job of government is to protect people, right, in a time when we know there's a thing called climate change caused by fossil fuels, and when we also know that many people can't afford to heat their own homes, what do you do? The first thing you would do on taking power, it seems to me, if your primary concern was the interests of your people, would be to say to all house builders, every new home must be built to a certain standard. Uh, which ensures proper insulation, which means it's really warm, even if you can't afford to pay your heating. And you would also, it seems to me, invest in, and this would create jobs. I know Jeremy Corbyn talked about this, but again, I don't see why this isn't something that Boris Johnson couldn't adapt. You could create thousands of jobs by retrofitting older properties. I think it was Rupert who said... Uh, is it a third of the homes in the UK don't have any loft insulation? That's heat just escaping into the skies that, that could be warming people's houses. 
exactly. Um, I, I totally agree. Um, and I feel like um, I feel like there's coming on from that something which I haven't researched enough. Um, but my husband told me about that the government are going to loan everybody some money this coming winter when our bills are really expensive. But then we have to pay them back. So they've basically just I, I assume that what they're going to be doing is um, subsidizing the electricity companies or gas companies. So they're going to give them money. So then later on, our bills are going to go up to pay back for that. I, yeah, I think I think that's how it will work. Yeah, the, the energy companies yeah. will be subsidised in the short term, but then will be allowed to reclaim. I think it's two hundred pounds this subsidy by the government. So it's a short term subsidy. So as you say, the the government I think will give it to the energy companies who will then claim it back through through bills. But yeah, it's only a delay in the pay. And the Absolutely. the other thing that Rishi Sunak said was that if you're in certain council tax bans, I think it's A to D, you'll also get 80% um, of your... You'll only have to pay 80% of your council tax. There's certainly some, some issue around a, a rebate to do with your council tax to try and soften the blow. But it is only softening the blow. There will still be a blow. Absolutely. And all they're doing is throwing money at situations that are real and that are devastating for families just as much as COVID has devastated families who are on low incomes. Throwing money at people who can't afford to pay that back isn't isn't how to fix it. It's devastating. I'm luckily in a situation where I don't actually need that loan. Um, so I don't want it. So I feel like I should be able to have a choice to not have it. And <laughs> yeah. Well, uh, yeah. It's probably in the realm of taxation. For, for what it's worth, Sparkers, I did do a recent episode of the Byline Times podcast about whether we should consider renationalising energy. And I spoke to a professor of economics at Cambridge University, and I, I think he thought I was beamed down from a different planet. But it, it just strikes me that at a time when we know energy supplies are being compromised when it's a key issue of national security and when private companies are profiting from the difficulties that ordinary people are having, it should at least be considered. Yeah, absolutely. absolutely. <laughs> I, I feel like it's really unth un unthoughtful and uneducated and I feel absolutely devastated by our government, actually. I'm, I'm not the brainiest person out there, but I have some common sense and I can see what a bad decision it is. Um, you know, it yeah, I just I feel like it's such a bad decision. And I feel like um along with we we need to start standing up and actually saying, no, this isn't okay. Um we need proper ways of how to create the UK as a safe a safe place to live and an affordable place to live and don't throw money at things use that money to create a better place for us all to live in um you know this is our community it's our island you've taken us out of the eu we now need to become that community um i, I think it's really important um to not just kind of all bicker about the differences you know and i don't really i don't like the idea of um of uh oh, i forgot what it's called nuclear power mm. but i think i think every avenue has to be reviewed very very um critically and fundamentally and what will be best long term for everybody not short term yeah absolutely um, and it's trying to distinguish you know get away from these divisions and 
the way of looking at things through the prism of particular political parties, but just through the prism of what is best for human beings, what's best for this people, for the people in this country, what's best for this planet. You know, it sounds very old fashioned, but that seems to me it should be the, the guiding light uh, for all politicians. Uh, Tamara, go on. Did you want to make a, a final comment, Tamara? Sorry. Yes, I did. On yeah. the cost of living crisis, um, just want to... Um... Uh, uh, let everybody know that they're, if you go on to People's Assembly, they are organising protests and they are organising protests all over the country because the um, I think that the average household is going to go up by about £700 and that's before the rise in October when it's going to rise again. Um, and then they're going to give people 200 quid that they can't afford to pay back. So I completely agree with uh, what Sparks was saying. And if people want to get involved, the uh, People's Assembly have been doing really, really amazing things. So just go on there and check them out. All right, Tamara, thank you very much thank indeed. You. Before we go today, by the way, thank you to Tamara and to Sparks. I just want to say hello to just a few of our listeners who are listening in. Thank you. Uh, hundreds of people listening in. Hello to Birgitta. Hello to Graham. Hello to Glow. Hello to Helen. Hello to Marty. Hello to Soleil. Hello to Mordecai, regular listener in New York. Hello to HP Hovercraft. Hello to uh, Lee. Hello to Simon. Hello to Marina. Hello to Jennifer. Oh, uh, Marina. By all means, get in touch. I'd love to have you on. Uh, hello to Claudia. Hello to Sandra. Hello to Chidi. Hello to Lady Rubel. Hello to Neck. Hello to Tom. Hello to Queku. Hello to Pat. Hello to Mag. Hello to Fahrenheit. Hello to Eileen Dwyer. Hello to Kempe. Hello to all of you, and thank you very much indeed for listening. We'll be back again tomorrow at noon, and then every day at noon, Monday to Friday, for What the Papers Don't Say, with me, Adrian Goldberg. You can support the work of the Byline Times by taking out a subscription. Go to bylinetimes.com to find out how. That's bylinetimes.com. And you'll not only get a fantastic free, not free, you'll not only get a fantastic paid-for monthly newspaper, you'll be helping to support the Byline Times website, Byline Radio. There is a new episode of Byline Times podcast out today as well. And it's a pretty grim subject. I've brought together some speakers talking about the consistent failure to deal with rape and allegations of rape and bringing cases of rape to court. So please have a listen to that. Check out the Byline Times podcast on all your regular podcast platforms. Thank you very much indeed for tuning in. We'll be back again tomorrow at 12. See you then. Cheers. Thank you. Thank you.